The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good evening, good evening, good evening. So tonight, we are taking a look at the book of Song of Solomon. I was tempted to do that, to come up with a bag on my head. Uh, because the content uh, is uh, risque, to say the least, and probably a little bit provocative for those of us that are of a more conservative nature. Um, and so we're going to dive into the, the book of Song of Solomon tonight. I, I say this to, to just let you know up front, if you have little ones, and, I, and I'm not joking, uh, if you have little ones that are present and you're concerned about them hearing certain verbiage or words, I'm going to talk very, very plainly through the text. Um, it will, in fact, include anatomy. Um, that it, there is some exploration that is happening in the text that will, um, will definitely um, provoke conversation with your little ones later. So if that's you, I just want to throw that disclaimer. You're free to make that choice as a parent. Um, but I want you to know that that's, that's indeed coming. So Song of Solomon. Now, Jeff, um, loving senior pastor that he is, he said, you know, I really need somebody to fill in for Song of Solomon. I'm like, man. <laughs> All right, I'll do, I'll do it. Um, this is actually a, a great text to teach. For those of you who don't know, this is a Middle Eastern love poem that is almost exclusively sexual, almost all the way through it. There are very few places that are not some sort of sexual reference. Um, and it's here in the Bible for us to gaze at and to look at. God exalts it, lifts it up by placing it in his word so that we can meditate upon it. So tonight, as we do that, would uh, you pray with me uh, that God will give us ears to hear his voice, that this won't turn into some sort of junior high uh, you know, giggle session, that we will approach God's word with the reverence that it is due, and at the same time not shy away from those topics that are, um, that are indeed specific and personal. So let's pray. God, we have seen the depths of your love as demonstrated through your Son. The reason that we're gathered here tonight is because of that fact alone. You showed us in tangible ways the absolute lengths that you are willing to go to love us and to redeem us. And tonight, as we explore this book that is about love, God, I pray that you would help us to walk in that reality. That we would walk away with a greater understanding of the, the depth of the love that you have for us. That our hearts would be provoked by your word. Brought to a place where we are forced to relate to you in something other than just theological categories that our hearts would be given to you, that our lives would be opened to you, and that we would desire closeness with you more than knowledge, not forsaking knowledge, but that we would desire God not to merely know about you, but to live with you and experience the glory of knowing you. So have your way in your word tonight. Teach and instruct us and draw us close. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now, Song of Solomon. Uh, Solomon is with, without a doubt the most notorious sexual figure in the Bible. He is known for having 699 wives, most people round it up to 700 because why not? <laughs> and 300 sexual concubines, so 1,000 women in Solomon's life. In light of this, it's a little difficult to read a book about sexual love between a husband and wife uh, 
knowing his prolific sin. Seeing that that is the background of what is happening in Solomon's life. I I think it it brings us to the crisis of, of this text and saying, okay, what's really happening here? Now, there are differing ways to view uh, how to properly understand the book and its content. I'll lay out for you a few of the various views so that you can have that in your toolbox in seeking to put this book into some sort of framework that really enables you to read and to apply it for yourself. Now, the first thing that you need to know is that the genre of this book is poetry, Song of Solomon is poetic wisdom literature. The, now, the purpose of poetry, I think, is apparent to most of us. But when you really think about the fact this book is one large poem, or, or more accurately, it's a collection of poems, it should bring to light the fact that God is trying to provoke something in us through imagery. So it is one thing, for example, for me to say true truths about um, God. It's one, for me, one thing for me to say, you know, um, our, our God is great, right? It's another thing for me to sing expressively, poetically, at the top of my lungs, how great is our God. When all of a sudden I bust out in song, I am connected with a truth and how it relates to my heart, to the inner man, to how I work on the inside. And poetry works in that same way. It uses imagery, it uses words in such a way that we are, we're not just learning true truths about something. We're connected with how we feel about those truths. The purpose of poetry is always to awaken or evoke the sentient part of our being. It takes the truth that we know and causes us to feel something about that truth. Now, this particular collection of poems from one author um, is uh, an example, it exemplifies in poetic language the attraction, the desire, the passion, the romance of sexual love. It reads very much like a play where the characters dialogue back and forth. There's sort of a a his section and a hers section where the, the, the characters in this poem are talking to one another and often describing one another and what they would like to do to each other. And it gets pretty racy throughout. The characters dialogue back and forth and they even reveal their secret thoughts and their desires through this. Now... I have to tell you, I, I spent all day today working my way through Song of Solomon. I sat with commentaries open. And I, I don't know if it's the junior high guy in me or uh, the fact that maybe something is wrong with my past or my perspective, but I felt like maybe I was getting away with something or doing something wrong. I mean, reading this, I'm like, oh, he's described, oh, wow, you know. I'm like, <laughs> Sort of giggling to myself, like I'm sitting in the middle of Black Rock Coffee, like I, I'm reading this stuff in public, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's just a wild, wild experience. So God is is stirring those things in me. I find that I am emotionally reacting to the text. There's a part of me that feels like ashamed to read it, like oh, I don't know if I should have that kind of knowledge about somebody else. I feel like maybe, maybe there's something here that's being revealed that I should not be privy to in some way. Have you ever had that experience in reading through the Song of Solomon? Maybe, maybe you've gone through it as well. You felt at times like, boy, I can't believe this is in the Bible. I can't believe this is here. That's proof that what God intends to do is actually working. It's provoking us to feel something about these realities. So, the genre is poetry. And you need to be familiar with the characters in the play. If if you read it like a play, it's important to know who the characters are. And so there's essentially three categories of characters. There's the two main characters. There's the bride. Uh, She's sort of the main character in this poetic play. She shares the largest portion of dialogue throughout the book. 
now, some people, in trying to figure out who this woman is, who, who the bride is in this play, some of them say, well, this is uh, probably Pharaoh's daughter from 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. Others favor Abishag, the Shunammite. Now, Abishag is an interesting character. Her, her story is found in 1 Kings chapter 1 um, through uh, chapter 4, verse 5. It's kind of like a long sort of dialogue uh, or narrative, I should say, about the end of David's life in that section. And Abishag was a Shunammite woman who was taken from the community around to be the nursemaid, if you will, or the, uh, the caregiver for David in the end of his life because he couldn't stay warm. And so she would kind of like snuggle up next to him and use her body heat to keep him uh, warm while he was aging out and, and eventually dying. Now that seems strange, but, but here is this beautiful young woman who is in the household of David who is essentially an electric blanket for him. But day in and day out in the palace, Solomon is interacting with this beautiful young woman. And it's a possibility that she is indeed his first love, the first girl that he ever falls in love with, and that this is her. That's a possibility. Or others would just see her as an unknown girl from Shunem, a small country town. Then there's the groom. The groom is a male figure that often shares his thoughts and reflections regarding the bride. This could be either Solomon or it might be um, an unknown author who, instead of writing for Solomon, is writing this in the theme of Solomon's poetic material and dedicates this poem to Solomon. The third category are the others in the text. Now, the others function kind of like a chorus, and if, uh, they have interactions specifically with the bride throughout the poems. Uh, the sort of, they sort of intone specific thoughts at moments throughout the play. And sometimes the others are this, this group of female characters called the Daughters of Jerusalem. Others, uh, at other times, it might be a reference to God himself blessing the sexual union of the bride and the groom. And at the very end of the book, there's a, a short section where the brothers of the bride kind of chime in um, for a few verses. So there's this possibility in chapter 5, verse 1, the second half, that it is God intoning um, and, and blessing their union. So you have these different characters in this play sort of being displayed. So the question is, how are we to understand it? Well, there's historically lots of ways that people uh, try to sort this out. Song of Solomon has been recognized by the Jews as included in the Old Testament, Old Testament books called uh, the Megaloth or the Five Scrolls. And to this very day, it's actually, it's read in its entirety during the Passover and is referred to or called the Holy of Holies. In other words, it's like the primary book during Passover that's like the climax of the celebration is to read this book communally and, and talk about love in this way. Now, it's interesting, this book is never quoted in the New Testament, along with a few others. There's books like Esther, Obadiah, and Nahum, who also don't make any appearance in the New Testament whatsoever. And, and it never really explicitly mentions God, though I think that there is a reference in the original language. It's kind of tucked away in some of the wording in chapter 8, verse 6. So the question is, how do we interpret this? How do we understand it? Well, historically, there's been different ways, uh, and there's been sort of three main approaches. The first is the allegorical approach. It, it suffered, um, in my opinion, strained interpretations over the centuries by those who use an allegorical approach to the Old Testament. Those that use this method say that it really doesn't have any historical basis and is meant really just to be a depiction of the love of God for Israel, or in the New Testament, looking back, the love of Christ for the bride of Christ, the church. 
So if you go allegorical, then you look at this love poem and you say, okay, it's really not talking about you know, boobies and um, you know, body parts and whatever else. It's, it's really talking about something different than that. It's, it's describing the love that God, that Jehovah has for Israel. Well, it gets too really, too explicit to, to, to just do that with it. I, I think that uh, uh, if you force or strain to fit the book of Song of Solomon into strictly an allegorical um, filter, and you're going to come out with some really strange understandings about the nature of God and his relationship to his people. And so others have said, no, it's not the allegorical approach, it's the typological approach. Now, this category of people, they, they admit the historical reality of a couple that existed that really loved each other and wrote this poem, okay? But they conclude that it is ultimately not really about their love for one another. It is really ultimately about Christ's love as the bridegroom for his bride, the church. And they say it's typological, it's foreshadowing the love of Christ for his people. And while I think that there is, there's merit to some of those realities, and we'll talk about that, again, it denies, I think, to a great degree, some of the nuance of the text itself. And you end up having to shape the text to fit your presupposition. You, you say, okay, well, I want it to come out like this. And so I'm going to steer the text in this way rather than just letting it say what it says. And that leads us to the third approach, and that is the historical approach. I think this is the best handling of the book. It allows for a literal interpretation that does not strain the text beyond the given meaning. Application, then, for this book is made not only for marriage, but the kind of oneness and the sharing that sexual love is meant to be reflective of. And so we can draw application without compromising the text itself. We get to stick to what it actually says and what it actually means, and from that begin to apply that to our lives with an understanding that it has an eye for marriage and God's plan for human sexuality and that there is an ultimate purpose behind those things. And God is trying to highlight or demonstrate that for us. So let's get down into the nitty-gritty. Let's take a look at the book itself, um, an introduction to the Song of Solomon. So let's take a look at the outline. First of all, the first verse, the Song of Songs which is Solomon's. The Song of Songs. This is a Hebraic idiom. It's, it's a, a way of highlighting something. So whenever you wanted to say that something was superior in its um, holiness, you would say the holiest of holies, right? And when, you, when it says here, the Song of Songs, it's saying this is the greatest song. This is the song above all other songs. This is the song that surpasses every song that has ever been written because it so perfectly portrays for us what it is trying to communicate. It's the song above all songs. And what is it trying to communicate? Chiefly, the joy and satisfaction of sexual love. Now it says, the song of songs, or the greatest of songs, which is Solomon's. Now, this has led people throughout the years to say, okay, this is Solomon's book. He wrote it. And classically, a lot of Hebrew people interpreted the book in that way. They said, okay, this was written by Solomon. But as time has gone on, it also could mean the verbiage, the wordage that is used, the book that is Solomon's, could also mean that it was dedicated to him and in the tradition of Solomon's poetry. So we don't have a really good definitive answer for who the actual author is, um, but we know that it is in some way connected to Solomon. Um, so he, there's our introduction, and, and the book itself divides into really uh, four easy sections to understand. First of all, the enchantment of love, the enchantment of love in chapters one through two. The excruciation of love in chapters 3 through 6, 1. The exhilaration of love in chapters 6 
verse 2 through chapter 8, verse 5, and the exclusivity of love in chapter 8, verse 6, through the end in verse 14. So real simple division for the book. Now, in this first section, the enchantment of love, we see these characters, the the bride and the groom, really, um, they're courting one another. They're pursuing one another sexually. There is um, a lot of flirtation and interplay Um, between them. It opens up with just this phrase in chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Okay. The French apparently did not invent kissing, right? He's like, oh, or she says about her groom, oh, man, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. You know what your love is like? It is better than wine. It's intoxicating. I love it so much. I want more of it. I crave your affection. I crave your love. And she goes on and says, you know, your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name or his reputation is oil poured out. Therefore, the virgins love you. Now, interesting, in chapter 2, or in verse 2, excuse me, and also in verse 3, the word love is used in both of those in our English translations, but it's two separate Hebrew words. The first one is dod. And the word dod, D-O-D, means sexual love. And then when she goes on to say, therefore, the virgins or the, the young women, the maiden, handmaidens, uh, love you. That word is a hev, A-H-E-V, and it means attraction. So everybody's attracted to you, but I sexually love you. That's really what she's saying. Now, it gets steamier from here as she says, you know, you're so hot. Your kisses are better um, then your love is better than, or your sexual love is better than wine. I, I want to be kissed with the kisses of your mouth. I love your lips. I love your love. I love your lotion. <laughs> I love your lifestyle. I love everything about you. And she says, draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. That phrase, draw me after you, um, literally means to seize or to capture, or to carry off. She says, take me away. (laughs) That's what she says. I love your love. And then the others chime in, this group that is sort of undefined. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And she chimes in again, and she says, I'm very dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze on me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. In other words, probably the Shunammite woman was of a lower social class, and she had to actually go out and work in the fields. In Middle Eastern civilizations, even to this very day, the lighter your skin is, the more attractive you are in those places. That was a common thing. And so uh, it meant that you were from the upper crust, that you didn't have to go out and... um, and work the fields. And so the fact that she was out in the fields and that her skin was very tan would have been considered not as attractive. She would have been considered lower class and probably is because she is from a lower social class um, than the groom. And so she says, you know, don't, don't look at how dark my skin is. I, I know that I'm dark. I know that I'm, I, I, I'm a worker and, and, you know, I'm a practical, pragmatic woman, but, but I'm still beautiful. I'm still lovely. Now tell me, she says in verse 7, whom my soul loves, where you pass your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? In other words, hey, I'd like to meet up with you. (laughs) 
So tell me where you're going to be. I don't want to have to walk around and I'm going to look like a prostitute because women don't wander around among the shepherds unless they're looking for money. That's just not something that they do. And so now he responds to her, this shepherd. If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tent. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments and your neck with strings of jewels. So he says, okay, look, if you want to meet up, follow the sheep footprints. Okay? And this, and this, this, this is what we'll do. You just happen to camp with your goats right next to where the shepherds are camped. And that'll provide space for us to kind of sneak off together. And be with one another. And then he says, And I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, Pharaoh's chariots were drawn exclusively by stallions. What happens when you have a whole bunch of stallions and a mare walks through? It's a little distracting, to say the least. And he says, man, uh, you got me over here like a stallion <laughs> seeing a mare for the first time. I'm completely drawn to you. I'm completely attracted to you. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. Your neck with strings of jewel. Apparently she looked good. She dressed nice. She kept up her appearance. And then the others chime in once again in verse 11. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. And then she responds. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. Now, nard doesn't sound like it's all that cool. Whatever it was, maybe she should have kept it to herself. I'm not sure what's going on there, but... Uh, she's there, and she's like, while he was just lounging around, I busted out the nard. <laughs> and my nard was like, you know, sneaking in, and he was like, oh, there she is, right? Now, nard was apparently very hard to come by. It was very costly, and the reason is, is because it was made from plants that could only be harvested. They only grow in the Himalayas. Very fragrant, very hard to get especially in those days. So she's got this expensive perfume, which, by the way, just a little tip, this one's a freebie. Smell matters, right? Smell matters if you're trying to be attractive to your husband, to your wife. Um, don't stink. It helps in that matter. Shower often, have good hygiene, care about those things. So while he was lounging around, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh. Now myrrh will come up again and again. That lies between my breasts. So she says, this man is to me like a close personal fragrance of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. And Getty was this oasis right near the Dead Sea. It's a place where this, in the middle of like the wasteland of the Dead Sea, the Engedi um, streams that come down spark all kinds of beautiful wildlife growing. There's acacia trees and there's beautiful flowers growing everywhere. It's just this incredible oasis in the middle of a wasteland. And, he, and she says, man, my lover... When he's lying between my breasts, he is like this incredible garden in a wasteland. He's my oasis. He's my safe place. He's my beauty in the middle of a Dead Sea-like world. And then he responds to her, You are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are like doves. Behold, you are beautiful, she says, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green, or it, literally it's leafy. Apparently where they meet is sort of an outdoor setting, right? 
So they're out in the middle of the woods, if you will. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. So they have this encounter, this meeting that's outdoors. And, and she's like, or he's like, you are so beautiful. You are, and she's like, no, no, you're beautiful. You're so beautiful. And I love you so much. And there's like this sort of childlike affection that is going back and forth. It's like two high schoolers that are just absolutely struck with love. They're overcome with attraction to one another. And in the middle of that, she says, oh, this is, this is our house, the outdoors. Our couch where we lie together is green. It's grass and wildflowers. And I mean, this is straight out of the movies, classic romantic lovemaking scene in the middle of the woods, right? That's what's happening right here. And then she says, I'm the Rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. I'm a beauty in a wasteland. And then he responds, as a lily among the thorns, so is my love among the young women. In other words, nothing compares to you. There is no other woman that can have my affection like you do. They're all thorns and you're the rose. Notice how exclusive the the man's love is. He says, you alone carry my affection. Everybody else compared to you, they're they're, they're like thorn bushes. You are my flower. And then she responds. (coughs) As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow And his fruit was sweet to my taste. Okay, so this is where we bump it up a notch just a little bit. He says, uh, or she says of her her groom, uh, my beloved is like an apple tree. Okay? And then she says, and I sat beneath the shadow and I tasted his apples. I think you can draw the connection of what is happening there. Um, And she said, his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, literally the house of wine, and his banner over me was love. And in those days, whenever armies would gather and there would be a big feast, there were banners that were set up for specific troops. And those specific troops would gather under each banner. So each regiment would would gather under their banner. And she says, there's been a call to war, essentially. What kind of war? It's a war between the two of them. And she says, the banner that is the call to war is our love. We are wrestling Intimately. It's like a war zone. I've tasted his apples. I'm drunk with his love. This is incredible what is happening. Matter of fact, it's so much like war. Verse 5, she says, Sustain me with raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. Literally, this has been so exhausting that I need some calories. She's like, we went to war together and it was passionate and amazing and I'm like, done for. She rolls over in a sweaty mess and is like, I I need some food or something. Passionate, passionate lovemaking. Verse 6, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me, literally embraces me, should read, stimulates me. Again, I think you can draw the connection as to what is happening. One hand is under her head, supporting her. The other hand is stimulating her. I adjure you, 
O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So she, she talks to that chorus of young women and she says, hey, listen, this is powerful stuff. Don't stir it up before that time where you can entrust your heart to somebody. Don't, don't go there because this is powerful, powerful juju here. What is happening in my heart? What is happening in my mind? What is happening to me physically is so powerful. Don't ever remove it from this context right here. Don't ever remove it from covenant love. Don't awaken it before it's time. And again, the bride begins to adore her husband. She longs to be with him. She hears his voice in verse 8. Verse 10, he says, My beloved speaks to me and says, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens, and the vines are in blossom, and they give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, and the crannies of the cleft, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet, and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. In other words, they're saying, okay, this is the moment. Let's seize this moment. There's, there's been a time of separation. They haven't been together. They want to be together. And finally, he, he stops by the house, and he's like, okay, listen, the winter is gone. The time of, of barrenness sexually where we have been together, that is, that's gone. Now it's spring. Let's put on a little Marvin Gaye. Let's go out into the vineyards, out into the fields. And let's, let's stop anything from spoiling this. The, the little foxes are an, an allusion to the fact that the little foxes would come and steal away the fruit before it was ripe. And, and in this dialogue, saying, let nothing hinder this, like purpose this. We need to be together. We need to come together. We can't just like let this sort of fade off to the background because this is important for us. And here in these first two chapters, we get an incredible picture of the enchantment of love, the draw that they have towards one another, the ways in which they are drawn to one another, the powerful bonding that is formed through, physical, through the physical joy of sexuality. And we see that love, when properly used, is incredibly enchanting. It's almost euphoric. And this incredible example for us in the scriptures is meant to awaken our senses to the reality, to the enchantment of how satisfying love can be. And then at the same time, in chapters 3, or 3 through chapter 6, we see sort of this parley back and forth where they long to be together. And then chapter 3 opens up with this dream that she has about her, her groom and how she longs to be with him. And, and at the same time, he's not able to be with her in that moment. And she is completely let down. She, she wakes up and she's ready for him. But she can't find him. And then they finally come together in chapter 4. It gets, it gets racy again. The groom begins to describe his, his wife and he, he starts with her eyes and begins to work his way down in chapter 4 verse 1 your eyes are doves behind your veil your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead so he says man you've got beautiful eyes and then his eyes are sort of strolling he goes oh I love your hair your hair is like a flock of goats just falling down, cascading over your shoulders like flocks of, of goats, these black goats that would come down the mountains of Gilead. Verse 2, your teeth, he says, are like a, a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost his young. In other words, you have all your teeth, 
so hot. You feature, you know, a Middle Eastern country. There's not dentists around. This is old, old, old days. A woman with all of her teeth and their teeth are white. I mean, that was a treat, right? It's like, oh, you've got all your teeth. None of your sheep are missing. It's so hot. He goes down, verse 3, he says, And your lips are like a scarlet thread. And your mouth is lovely. And your, your cheeks are like halves of pomegranate behind your veil. In other words, you know, she's got these cheeks that are just sort of rosy and shining. He's like, oh, so beautiful. And he continues, working his way down from her head. Your neck is like the Tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, and all of them shields of warriors. In other words, you're, you've got really strong neckline. It's just beautiful to me. And he says, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Okay? Now that seems maybe a little weird to us. Hey, your, your breasts are like Two furry woodland creatures. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's a, I guess that's hot. <laughs> I mean, I, guess I, I picture Marvin Gaye's in the background. Let's get it on, you know. And he's like, I love your hair. I love your eyes. And your boobs are like little animals. <laughs> and she's like, <laughs> music stop. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Uh, apparently it was hot to her. She thought it was... Okay, I, I, the only comparison that I can think of is that you, you think about young, um, young uh, deer, right? And they're, well, they're perky. They, they're bouncing everywhere, just leaping around, right? I mean, I guess, I think he's like, is this a petting zoo? <laughs> I mean, maybe... We could work something out. Is there a fee for this? I don't know, right? Um, but he's, he's working his way from the top all the way down. He says, I, I like, you know, your perky animals. Maybe she had a hairy chest. Maybe that was the deal. Um, but, but that is his compliment, nonetheless. Um, verse 6, until the day breathes and the shadow flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Now, did she have flaws? She admits it. Yeah, I've got flaws. But not to him. Not to him. When he looks at her, he goes, Oh, you are so radiantly beautiful. I, I am just so in love with you. Everything about you is perfect to me. It's as though God took every piece of you and considered me in that because there is no other female in my peripheral vision. There is no other standard. You alone are my standard of beauty. And there is nothing, there is no flaw in you. You are all fair, my love. You know, it's interesting. I've been married now for 17 years. And as soon as I mentioned that, my wife, I'm sure, would be really nervous that I'm here. Um, but I've complimented my wife over the years. And I've talked to her about how beautiful she is to me. Do you know how hard that is for her to receive? It's so interesting to hear the struggles of women as they have so much, they know their own weaknesses. They know how they see themselves. They constantly have this internal dialogue about all the things that are wrong with them. You know, they have that for the house, right? Which is like the dishes you need to be done. They've got like a list of all the things that should be better in the house. They have it for their nest and they have it for their own hearts and for their own bodies. And they carry this internal dialogue where it's like, I've got this flaw and their eye is to that. What a blessing to have a husband who says, there's no flaw in you. You are perfect for me. Everything about you is what I desire. And there's none other besides you. You're perfect. 
Well, it goes on. You know, they obviously, uh, they get busy here. And then uh, in, in chapter 5, uh, we see uh, them continuing on. <clears throat> Actually, let's, let's back up. Chapter 4, um, in verse 12. A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. Your shoots are... Uh, an orchard of pom- uh, are an orchard of pomegranates with all the choicest fruits, henna with nard, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon. He says, you're spicy. Uh, I like you. Um, and, then he, and then he goes on to say, a garden fountain, a well of living water, and flowing streams from Lebanon. So as he's describing her, he, he refers to a portion of her body as being a fountain a place where, um, where water flows freely, okay? And uh, that's an, an obvious reference to um, her being turned on, stimulated sexually. And then it says, oh, awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind, and blow upon my garden, and let its spices flow, now, um, the north wind was signal of the time to harvest. When the wind changed directions and the north wind would begin to blow, they'd say, okay, the harvest is coming. And she's saying, listen, it's time to reap the fruits of my garden. That's essentially what she's saying. And, uh, and so she says in verse, uh, the last verse of chapter 4, let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Um, in other words, he would like to perform some sort of oral sexual favor, favor uh, for her. This is the flow of the book again and again, and it goes back and forth. Um, again, there's this interlude where she searches for her beloved in chapter 5. Uh, again, she's not able to find him, and she's frustrated by that. Finally, she does find him, and again, uh, spontaneous, passionate lovemaking breaks out in chapter 6. And, and we see in this section, this middle section from chapters 3 to v- chapter 6, verse 1, that love is also excruciating. When she can't have him, she's like totally distraught and distressed. And then, and then all of a sudden she'll find him and their passions are united. And there's this back and forth of like, there's distance between us. And yeah, let's come together again. And there's, there's distance between us. And yeah, let's come together again. And there's this interplay between them of, of seasons of life. And he compares it in one place to being like winter, right? Like a cold season. And they set their hearts to pursue passion once again. And we see here that that love is excruciating. Love is excruciating. C.S. Lewis put it this way in The Four Loves. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. See, here's the thing. In this passion play back and forth where there's winter seasons and then the pursuit of passion once again, you have to be vulnerable again and again and again in marriage. You have to let your guard down and there's seasons where it hasn't been easy and it's been tough and it's been difficult in marriage. And you have to keep coming back. I will pursue love. I will pursue oneness. I will pursue closeness. Because it is the decree of God for me to do so. That's obedience. But also, it is the desire of my heart. I set my affections there through covenant. When I committed myself to you as a husband, when I committed myself to you as a wife, I said, I will make this choice for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, until death separates us. 
in sickness and in health, it doesn't matter. I will pursue you. And that is excruciating, isn't it? Isn't it excruciating to be hurt and to choose love again? Isn't it excruciating to lay down your life one more time and choose love again? Oh, that's work. But it's worth it. That, by its very nature, is what love is. The length or the depth of your love is determined by how much you are willing to suffer for that thing that you love. Jesus put it this way. Greater love has no man than this, than that a man laid down his life for his friends. And then he looked at his disciples and he said to them, and you are my friends. To what degree will we suffer for one another and choose love? Wow. We see that the excruciation of love. We see the exhilaration of love. In chapter 6, it's more crazy sexual lovemaking. Um, the interlude between them goes again back and forth, her complimenting him and him complimenting her and um, you know, the incredible descriptions of her body, which, I, you know, I, again, these are Old Testament descriptions, but he says, you know, your belly is like a heap of wheat. I guess that was hot, you know, back then. It's like, oh, man, it's like a, your belly's like a big mound of wheat. Oh, love that. So, you're so sexy. <laughs> right? Um, but apparently it, it meant something actually... Uh, as I was trying to understand this myself uh, in, in chapter 7, when he, he talks about her belly being like a, a heap of wheat, um, it probably has to do with her womb being fruitful and the wheat grains sticking up like little batches of pubic hair. And uh, he's describing uh, her genitalia to her. Uh, he, he says, your navel is... Around it, in verse 2 of chapter 7, your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine, and your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Uh, the word navel there is uh, an, an interesting one. It probably is a reference to, um, to her vagina. Uh, he says, your, your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. If her navel was large and round and filled with red liquid I think maybe she needs to see a doctor, right? Uh, he has something else in mind when he's describing her, right? And he's being uh, very um, descriptive in that. Uh, in another place, she describes him and says that uh, his, his thighs are like um, gold or his arms are like gold. And, and then she says his loins are, are like ivory, if you imagine a tusk, you know what she's saying. Um, they delight in one another's bodies. And that's the point. We see the exhilaration of love perfectly described in chapter 6, verse 2, through chapter 8, verse 5, descriptive of sexual attraction and exploration with one another. They absolutely are pursuing each other. They're infatuated with each other. They're sexually attracted to one another and deeply satisfied in that love. And in the final few verses, we read some things that are incredibly important. When we get to chapter 8, verse 6, it says this, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death, and jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it out. If a man offered, uh, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. In other words, you can't buy love. She says, essentially, in the same way that death and the grave are never satisfied, love cannot be satisfied. 
Hey, you know, here's the thing. This is a biblical principle that carries throughout the scripture. And that is this. A candle will only burn at the expense of a candle. In order for a candle to stay on fire, the candle has to give something up. Okay? A candle will only burn at the expense of a candle. In other words... Guys, listen, passion and love, is not, it's not this one-time event, this decision that you make, one time you go, oh, I love you, and then it lasts forever. It is the continual offering of your life to one another. And this couple says, man, it's like the, the grave, it's never satisfied. There's never a moment where I'm like, oh, finally, I've had enough of your love for life. It doesn't work like that. We keep pursuing. We keep pressing into love. We keep offering ourselves and burning ourselves up for the sake of one another. This is the kind of love that God has called covenant makers to in the covenant of marriage. The continual offering of yourself. And we see in that the exclusivity of love. I give myself to you exclusively. Nobody else gets me like you do. You have all of me. There's no barrier. There's nothing I'm holding back. You get it all. We get the exclusivity of love. He goes on down in verse 10, or excuse me, verse 11. It says this, Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let out the vineyard to keepers, each one to bring forth its fruit, a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit, two hundred. And then he says, O you who dwell in the gardens with the companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. And she says, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a stag on the mountains of spices. There's this weird little division at the end where there's a sort of negative reference thrown to all the women that Solomon has. And essentially, um, the writer who is being the voice for the woman says, okay, I know you've got lots of vineyards where you've got lots of wine, right? All throughout this idea of the vineyard has been her body, right? A place of fruitfulness. And she says... I don't want to be in this position where you compare me to these other vineyards. I I don't want that. I want to be exclusively yours. I give myself exclusively to you. He's trying to make arrangements to, to buy her affection, the very thing that she said up above that you cannot do. And there's this final warning for this book that says, hey, you can't buy love. It can only be offered. And she circles back around and and offers herself to him again, but not at the price, not at the ransom of of gold or of silver. So final applications, and and I'm going to cut you guys loose. I know that we're, we're running tight on time, as is my pattern every time I teach. Three applications that I want you to grab a hold of. First of all, sex is God's idea. Sex is God's idea. It isn't perverse. And, and, and you need to hear this. And, and here's why you need to hear this. To those who have been sexually abused, to the sexually sinful, to the sexually untrained, part of our discipleship and growing in God is letting God define how life works and not the world. It's coming to a place where we say, okay, I am letting my mind be renewed by the word of God. Romans chapter 12, the first couple of verses. If you have sexual history, sexual sin, sexual abuse in your past, it's really easy to look at sex and go, oh, it's this dirty thing. It it needs to be done away with. No, listen, it was God's idea in the first place. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says this, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. In other words, don't think of it as something dirty. Sex is a physical expression of vulnerability, of oneness, and of servant-hearted love. 
Sex was God's idea. Second of all, sex is a gift to be enjoyed. You know, there's some corners of the church that say that it's only for procreation. So if you have like three kids, that's it. No more, right? Stop procreating, stop having sex. In some, some places they will say that. But we see here that it's, it's not. That's not God's design for sexuality. It's actually a, a joy. It's a gift. It's a grace of God. Matter of fact, First Peter alludes to this and says that, that it is the grace of life in marriage. The grace of life in marriage. So Paul warns the unmarried about judgment that is due to sexual sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. He says, okay, wrong sex, sinful sex is bad, and there's judgment that comes from that. But there is a right purpose and a right use for human sexuality. And in chapter 7, in the first few verses, in verses 1 through 5, he says it's within marriage, within the covenant, the safety of marriage, the promised love that you offer yourself to one another. And then he, he says, don't withhold that in marriage. If you're married, don't withhold that from one another. It's a gift to be enjoyed. You don't withhold yourself in marriage. Don't, don't keep somebody at arm's distance. Don't use sex as a weapon to manipulate each other. Sex is the offering of yourself in a tangible way to your spouse. It's saying, I give myself to you. Body, soul, spirit, I'm yours. And sexual joy is to be explored and enjoyed rather than feared. Within the context of marriage, God says, I want you to experience this. There's something for you to learn in this. There's something for you to grasp in this. It forges togetherness. It creates oneness. And I want you to experience that, which leads me to my last point. Sex is a glory anticipated. Sex is God's idea. Sex is a gift to be enjoyed. And sex is a glory anticipated. God designed human sexuality to be expressed in in physically symbolic and pointed ways. If you think about it, we could have been made like mushrooms, right? Where like all of a sudden I'm just walking along and I drop some spores. And then um, somebody else, another girl is walking along. She drops some spores and then babies like pop up. That could have been the way it worked. Maybe it was like fish, right? She's just walking through life, little squirts a little egg out, right? He's walking along, squirts a little semen on. No touching, no personalness, nothing is happening there. And maybe that could have been God's design. But he chose specifically to put us in a position to have to be face-to-face, skin-on-skin, close to one another. There has to be vulnerability. There has to be the letting down of your guard. There has to be contact between one another. And there is something that he's doing in that that is expressive of his nature. As a matter of fact, he said, didn't he? Let us make man in our own image. There's something he's teaching us about, human, about himself through human sexuality. God designed it to be expressed in physical and symbolic and pointed ways. He is demonstrating something of the sharing nature of himself through being made in his image. The fact that we have to share ourselves with one another brings us to the crisis of what it means to be vulnerable what it means to love, what it means to be available. And the oneness of sexual union, in that we we see the closeness that God desires to share with his people. It is expressive of the joy, the pleasure, the satisfaction that results from being close with God himself. And it is a shadow of greater satisfaction. Now this is demonstrated all throughout the scriptures. It's demonstrated through the prophets in negative ways when Israel's pictured as an unfaithful bride. He calls her a harlot. And there is some explicit stuff. In Ezekiel chapter 23, verses 18 through 21, he accuses the children of Israel and says, hey, you know what you guys are like? You're like a whore that goes after Egyptians. You're like a prostitute. and You just love them because of their giant penises and their emissions like horses. I mean, this is scripture. He says that unfaithfulness, that 
that denial is an offense to me. And when you serve and love others above me, it hurts and affects my heart in the same way that it does in marriage. It's destructive. And it's also demonstrated throughout New Testament passages where oneness is expressed as the desire of God. Passages like John chapter 17, verses 22 through 26, where he says, uh, we want to be one, I in them and them in me. It's expressed in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, where it says that the man and wife will be joined together and the two shall be one flesh. And he says, and this is a great mystery. I speak as concerning Christ and the church. The oneness of sexual intimacy is reflected in the oneness of Christ and the church. It's also demonstrated through the, the uh, idioms used in prophetic language in the book of Revelation. You have things like the bride, the groom, the marriage supper of the lamb. And once again, a final scene in a garden where the consummation of everything that has been made, God becomes one with his people and his people become one with God in a garden just like the book of Song of Solomon. And so God uses this joy and elation as a picture of the joy of closeness with him. Here's what that means. That means for the single person, the divorced person, the widowed, our experience with God will surpass the physical and temporary satisfaction of this life. And the temporary pleasure of sex on earth will be replaced by the everlasting joy that is more satisfying than any sexual experience this world has to offer. And so if you're single, you need to know what God has for you is better. Don't compromise. Don't settle for what is less. And it means for the married person that for a moment you get a little glimpse into the joy of eternity here on earth, the closeness, the satisfaction that you feel in married sexual encounters is a small taste of the joy and satisfaction that will be experienced with God forever and ever in the Garden City with him. This experience of love for each of us has been made available. That closeness with God has been made available through one supreme act of love, and that is this. The Son of God said, I'm not waiting for you to come near to me. I will draw near to you. And he came and he laid his life down on a cross so that he might be one with us forever. He gave his life that we might enjoy closeness with him for all of eternity. Let's pray. The last few verses of this book tells us that love is stronger than death and you proved it, God, when you went to the cross. Thank you for giving us this picture of love and how it stirs in us all kinds of feelings. It stirs in us an an amazement at your design that we would have to be vulnerable with each other and, and bear ourselves to one another in order for love to happen in this way. We thank you for that picture that reminds us of what it means to be close to you, to be vulnerable, to open ourselves to you, to be available. And I pray, God, that through your word, our hearts would be provoked tonight, not just to know about you, but to be with you. To not just know details, but to share fellowship in our hearts. Bless your people as they go. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful night.